Dan Peterson's a native of Southern, <clears throat> Southern California. He received a bachelor's degree in Greek and philosophy from Brigham Young University. And after several years of study in Jerusalem and Cairo, earned his PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Cultures from the University of California at Los Angeles. Uh, he's a professor of Islamic study and Arabic at BYU, where he has taught Arabic language and literature at all levels. And there's a lot more here on the, on the um, bio you can read. I do remember my wife having an interaction with Dan once where Dan was talking about one language and another language, and my wife commented, Dan, how many languages do you speak anyway? And his comment back was, oh, I don't know, and most of them are dead anyway. So, <laughs> so with that, I'll introduce Dan Peterson. I'm going to be drawing on, um, on a couple of thinkers. Let's see if I've got this going the right way. Yes. One of them is William James. Um, William James was, some have argued, one of the greatest philosophers ever produced in the United States. He was the brother of the novelist Henry James. He was really a psychologist. His Principles of Psychology was a foundational text in the discipline. But he's become famous as a founder of pragmatism and so on. He was a, one of the great figures in the philosophy program at Harvard until his death in 1910. And uh, there are a lot of things that I want to borrow from William James. I'll just mention one today. One is, is an analogy that he used uh, about a carriage. He's talking about decision-making under conditions of uncertainty, where you don't know absolutely certainly whether X is true or Y is true, but you have to make a decision nonetheless. And he says, imagine yourself in a carriage the driver's gone in to get a drink. Suddenly the carriage begins to roll down the hill. It's going faster and faster. You have to make a decision. How are you going to react to this? Um, you're not sure whether it would be safer to stay in the carriage. You know, that might be safe, but on the other hand, it might smash into something at the base of the hill and you die. Would it be wiser to jump out? On the other hand, if you jump out, you might be killed. You just don't know. He says under conditions like that, either decision is rational. That's sort of a basic statement of rationality that if you can't really decide, you have to just kind of go with one and it's, you know, as long as it's roughly 50-50 or 60-40 or something like that, you're not making an irrational decision. You might turn out to be wrong, but you are reasonable in making that decision. That's one of the ways I'm going to be looking at rationality. If I can get you to something like 50-50, uh, then I'm relatively happy. You then have to choose based on your own personality, your predilections, your spiritual uh, intuitions, and so on. But as I say, in some cases, I think I can, I think I can take the argument further than 50-50. Um, William James also talks about live options versus dead options. In some cases, people simply won't consider a case because it seems so absurd to them that they don't even want to look at the evidence. And we do that all the time, frankly. If somebody comes to me arguing that the Earth is flat, I'm not really interested in the technical arguments that a flat earther might make. On the whole, I just don't see it as a live option. For me, it's a dead option. There's another thinker that I have in mind as I, as I sort of look at this issue, which is, um, um, whoops, went too far there, Pascal, the great uh, French mathematician philosopher. Uh, you may know Pascal's wager. Pascal said basically, look, um, in this life, again, under conditions of uncertainty, assuming you really don't know, you have to decide what would be most in your interest. You can assume there is no God and live a life of worldliness and so on. If when you die you're dead and that's it, well, you haven't lost anything. Um, on the other hand, you haven't gained much because you're dead. Um, but he said assume that there is a God. 
uh, and you make the right wager, then you will have gained a lot. If you make the wrong wager, you will pay a big price for that. Um, it's a fairly cold calculating sort of wager. Uh, I'll come back to that point in just a minute. Uh, but it has one obvious weakness, which is that it doesn't allow you to decide. He lived in a, in a society that was overwhelmingly Catholic, and that was the religious option that was available to him. But if you live in a pluralistic society, you're still left with a question, okay, I want to be religious, I want to be faithful. Should I be a Muslim, a Hindu, a, a Buddhist, um, a, a Christian? If a Christian, Catholic, Protestant, Methodist, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, Christian scientist, uh, it doesn't help you decide there. Nevertheless, it does say something about which way you ought to be inclined under conditions of uncertainty. So I'll be coming back to that. Uh, I'm going to also be drawing on this cute little thing. Some of you may recognize it. This is Bayes' theorem. Um, Bayes' theorem is a, is a theorem in probability theory and statistics which describes the probability of an event based on conditions that might be related to the event. To, I won't get into the details, but if you have a case where, um, where certain things are true, that makes certain other things more likely than not. If you believe there is a God, for example, the probability that Christ rose from the dead rises a bit. If you believe there absolutely is no God, no supernatural, then the probability of Christ rising from the dead is very, very low, given your assumptions. In other words, it could become a live or a dead option, depending on what you believe before that. So my case is a cumulative case where I'm trying to argue certain things, theism first, then Christian theism, and I'm happy with anybody who follows me any distance along the way with those arguments. Uh, the further I can get them, the happier I am but I'm happy if I can get them from atheism to theism, from theism to Christian theism, and so on. Um, give you a little more detail on that for those of you who want to, want to study Bayes' theorem. An example would be if you say that, uh, that John has cancer. Um, it might be helpful to know that John is, is age 65. You're not sure that he has cancer, but if he's 65, the odds are somewhat higher than if he's 10, um, because cancer is often related to age. So the information about his age might increase or decrease the probability that the diagnosis of cancer is accurate. Um, now here's an irrelevant slide, just something to look at while I talk about something else. Um, I'm, uh, I, as I say, I'm bracketing the question of personal revelation, but it's not because I don't think it important, it's simply because that's not something that I can deliver to you with a book or a lecture or even a film project as I'm hoping possibly to do in connection with this. Um, and I wanted to come back to Pascal. He's, he's been accused of being sort of bloodless and coldly rational and cynical in this wager of his. But you have to understand Pascal's own biography. That wasn't his personal stance. Here's something that was found sewn into the lining of his coat when he died by his servant. The servant found a, a paper that he'd sewn into his coat, which obviously meant a great deal to him. It was talking about an event that occurred to him on November 23rd, 1654. He was in his Paris apartment when he evidently had something like a vision, what he called a night of fire. This is what he wrote. From about half past 10 in the evening until about half past midnight, fire, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and intellectuals, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, the God of Jesus Christ. O oh, just Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then he closes, your God will be my God, quoting Ruth in the Bible. Um, so obviously that goes way beyond what I can offer with a lecture. But 
That needs to be kept in mind. If that comes to you, you don't need syllogisms. But it may take syllogisms and arguments to get you to the point where religion becomes a live option. I've cited before the case of my own father, uh, who I grew up in an, in a part member family, a marginal mother and non-member father. And uh, it wasn't until my father began reading the, the works of Hugh Nibley, fairly late in his life, that the question suddenly occurred to him as he explained it to me, could this possibly be true? That hadn't been a live option in his mind until Nibley convinced him that maybe it was worth inquiring about, and he ultimately did join the church. Um, there are other arguments that could be made. Um, for example, you could argue, and, and I will make the argument, not that this proves that religion is true, um, but that religious believers, according to a lot of measurements, a lot of studies, are more contented, healthier, and so on. The old argument that, that uh, Freud made, that religion was some kind of mental illness and that it incapacitated you in some way, this is simply not true. The evidence indicates that, uh, that religious people are healthier by many, many uh, uh, measures. There was a book, in fact, done... Uh, by a professor who teaches a course on C.S. Lewis and Freud uh, at Harvard Medical School, a psychiatrist there, who compares the two of them, and which one of them was happier and healthier mentally and emotionally? Not even close. Not even close. Okay. So another person that I will be drawing on is C.S. Lewis. I mean, C.S. Lewis is... I read him a lot when I was younger, and then I paused for a while, and then I began to read him again, and I thought, good grief, he's even better than I thought. Um, just on a lot of levels. Um, one of the arguments he makes has to do with moral intuition. He's not the only one who makes it. Uh, he at one point says, you know, try to imagine an utterly new moral value. Um, you can't any more than you can imagine a new primary color. I mean, they just come to you. They're sort of delivered to you. What does that mean? Is that a rock-solid argument for the existence of God? I don't think so, but it might be an indicator of something in the universe that is beyond just matter and motion, which, as we heard today from Stephen Webb, Matter and motion is a problematic concept in and of itself. If you want to read an interesting book, read Richard Panek's um, uh, The 4% Universe. He's talking about the discovery of dark matter and dark energy. Only 4% of the universe is, is matter as we know it. The old common sense materialism is dead because 96% of the universe is something we can't even figure out what it is. But it's there in massive quantities, okay? Um, so moral intuition seems to point towards something in the universe that is, that is behind what we can observe, what we can measure, what we can analyze in the test tube. I'm going to be drawing on uh, John Calvin, unlikely suspect for a Latter-day Saint. But, uh, but John Calvin talked a lot about what he called the sensus divinitatus, uh, the, the sense of the divine, a kind of natural intuition of God. That counts for something, too. Or you can look at Alvin Plantinga, the great uh, philosopher of religion at Notre Dame, who's argued for what he calls proper warrant, uh, that, that it is legitimate for people to regard religious faith, the conviction that there is a God, as something that is properly basic in his technical terminology. That if their rational functions and their, their, uh, their senses and so on are working in a, in a normal way, for them to simply have this overwhelming sense of, of God, that he exists, is a legitimate stance to take philosophically. Uh, I'll draw on that. I'll draw on words with sense of intuition. I'll, and this is related back again to C.S. Lewis, something that he talked a lot of, uh, about and that means a lot to me because I understand it. 
He talks in his autobiography and elsewhere about uh, a sense of longing. He uses the German word Sehnsucht for it, uh, yearning, something like that, or, or a sense of what he called pure northernness, hence the slide. For him, and incidentally for me, it's coincidental, but it, I understood immediately what he was talking about. There's a sense of something, something missing in this universe, but it, it hits you at odd moments. There's a certain chord in Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor that hits me every single time. I know when it's coming, uh, and that hits me. But there are certain landscapes, and they point beyond themselves to something that indicates, you, to borrow Eliza Snow's phrase, you're a stranger and a pilgrim, or you're a stranger here. You're, uh, you know, there's something, it, it isn't satisfied. It's hinted at in this world, but it points to something beyond. These are all the sorts of things that that are sort of preparatory, or uh, I'm an Islamicist, right, so I had to draw on something from Islam. Uh, Jalal din Rumi, the great uh, Sufi mystic poet, in the very first part of his Masnavi, uses an image of, of the reed flute. Why is the reed flute so sad sounding? Why is it so, so plaintive? Because the reed was cut from the riverbed where it belongs, and it's in isolation. It's been taken away from its home, and it wants to get back to where it belongs. And we all have that sense that we want to go back to where we belong. Um, it's, it's really St. Augustine from the very first page of his confessions. Our hearts are restless until we rest in thee. And for a lot of us, not everybody, clearly. I doubt that Richard Dawkins has ever felt it. But for a lot of us, there's a sort of God-shaped hole in the heart or something, some sense of spiritual yearning. It may not hit you all the time. And much of our modern life is designed to sort of avoid this feeling. We keep ourselves really busy with all sorts of nonsensical, frenetic activity. But, but what, we're, what we're concealing from ourselves is the sense that there's something more, right? And a lot of people feel that and... and Augustine, Lewis, and others would argue that it cannot be satisfied until you turn to God in some way. Um, I'm going to be looking at evidence for the paranormal. I never thought I would be doing this, but I actually am convinced now that there is some fairly solid evidence. Gary Schwartz at the University of Arizona has done some remarkable work on ESP. I mean, psychic stuff. I, th I thought that was crazy. But reading some of the current research and list listening to people like... Um, John Hick, for example, the late John Hick, the philosopher at Claremont in Birmingham, he said, no, if you really read the Society of Psychical Research stuff, some of it is actually very difficult to account for on the, on the assumption that this universe is just a material, common sense sort of place. There's some funny things going on in the universe that don't fit the materialist worldview. These all, to me, are indicators of something, something real, something beyond. Um, then... This is all preparatory stuff. I'm not into the real argument yet. Um, you can see why this, why this is going to go on and on and on and on. Um, I want to address the issue of cosmic fine-tuning. Um, the, the initial question is, why is there something rather than nothing? But why is it orderly? Uh, Albert Einstein said that the eternal mystery of the world is its comprehensibility. Why in the world does it make sense? Or there's a Hungarian-born... Uh, um, American theoretical physicist and also a Nobel laureate by the name of Eugen Wigner, um, who wrote a very famous paper entitled The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. And what struck him was it, how weird it was that mathematicians could sit in their studies inventing mathematical theorems and so on, imaginary numbers and so on, and then they would apply to the universe. Why? 
Why, why in a creature who just evolved sort of randomly in the savannas of Africa or something like that, why do we even have to have minds, brains that can do this sort of thing? And why does the mathematics that we think of fit the universe? It's odd. It's, it's very strange that it applies to the real outside world. Um, but I want to run a few figures by you, and I'm made a little nervous by the fact that there is a theoretical physicist sitting on the front row here. But um, here we go anyway. Uh, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, right? Um, by the way, I'm, I've, I've got a title in my head that I want to use for something. I just can't think of any relevant purpose for it. I've, I wanted to write something called Fools Rush In Where Engels Fears to Tread, you know, about Friedrich Engels and Karl Marx, but I just don't know what to do with it. Anyway, uh, cosmic fine-tuning. I'm going to read this part because I actually wrote up a few paragraphs on it for something else. Scientific study of the universe in recent decades has revealed an intricate and finely tuned ensemble of factors that make our existence possible. The seminal text is probably Brandon Carter's 1974 paper, Large Number Coincidences in the Anthropic Principle in Cosmology. These factors, sometimes, as in the title of Brandon Carter's paper, questioned beggingly called anthropic coincidences are necessary conditions for life as we know it and as we can conceive it. For that reason, some have argued that the proper term ought to be biocentric rather than anthropic. That they exist is not in question, it's their significance that's debated. There are various lists of these, fairly, some fairly long. For the sake of brevity, though, I'll concentrate on just six of them as they're listed in, in the appropriately titled book, Just Six Numbers, written by Sir Martin Rees, the Astronomer Royal of England, former Master of Trinity College, Cambridge, and past President of the Royal Society. Two of them, he says, relate to the basic forces, two fix the size and overall texture of our universe and determine whether it will continue forever, and two more fix the properties of space itself. One, the ratio of the electromagnetic force to the forces of gravity, N. This can also be expressed as the electrical force between two protons. You don't, you're not going to have to remember this, but I want you to get the sense of it. This can be expressed as the electrical force between two protons divided by the gravitational force between them. N equals, I'm going to read the number to you, if I can. One zero 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 uh, I don't think I left any zeros out. If it were slightly smaller than the value that we actually see, Professor Rees says, quote, only a short-lived short miniature universe could exist. No creatures could grow larger than insects, and there would be no time for biological evolution. Two, the strong nuclear force. The strong nuclear force accounts for the firmness with which atomic nuclei bind together. It determines how long stars live. It has a value of 0 .007 and it controls the power from the sun, and more sensitively, how stars transmute hydrogen into all the atoms of the periodic table. Without the heavier elements, especially carbon, life as we know it would be impossible. But if the value of this constant were 0 .006 or 0 .008, neither they nor we would exist. Another irrelevant photograph. Item three, the amount of matter in the universe, omega. The cosmic number omega is a measure of the total amount of material in the known universe, regardless of the form in which it occurs, whether in galaxies and diffuse gas or in so-called dark matter and dark energy. Uh, omega answers the question of the relative importance of gravity and expansion energy in the universe after the Big Bang. If this ratio were too high relative to a particular critical value, 
Professor Reese explains, the universe would have collapsed long ago. Had it been too slow, no galaxies or stars would have formed. The initial expansion speed seems to have been finely tuned. It's rather, he says, like sitting at the bottom of a well and throwing a stone up with such precision that its rise comes to a stop at precisely the top of the well. At one second after the Big Bang, he continues, Omega cannot have differed from unity by more than one part in a million billion. Okay. Item four, cosmic repulsion, or lambda. In 1998, cosmologists recognized the importance of cosmic anti-gravity in controlling the expansion of the universe. In particular, they noticed that it becomes increasingly important as the expanding universe becomes more diffuse, darker, and emptier. Fortunately for us, and very surprisingly to theorists, says Martin Rees, lambda is very small. Otherwise, its effect would have stopped galaxies and stars from forming, and cosmic evolution would have been stifled before it could even begin. Item number five. The ratio of the gravitational binding, binding force to rest mass energy, or Q. The seeds for all cosmic structures, stars, galaxies, and clusters of galaxies, were all imprinted in the Big Bang. Q determines what might be called the texture or fabric of the universe, and is thus fundamentally important. Its value is about 1 over 100,000. If Q were even smaller, writes Professor Rees, the universe would be inert and structureless. If Q were much larger, it would be a violent place in which no stars or solar systems could survive, dominated by vast black holes. Q, he continues, was imprinted in the very early universe and the embryos of clusters and superclusters, structures, structures stretching millions of light years across the sky can be traced back to a time when the entire universe was of microscopic size the sixth of the six numbers, the number of spatial dimensions, or D. This may seem a strange one to most of us, but it's crucial that there are three spatial dimensions. String theory, controversial I know, holds that there were originally 10 or 11 dimensions at the birth of the universe, but they were compacted into a lower number. Life couldn't exist, says Professor Rees, if D were two or four. Together, these figures constitute what Martin Rees labels a recipe for a universe. If any one of them were lacking, we would be lacking as well. Yet each of these six numbers seems to be independent of the other. The value of one cannot be predicted, not thus far at least, from the value of any other, nor from the assembled values of the others altogether. To continue with this, why, asks the famous British cosmologist Stephen Hawking, is the universe so close to the dividing line between collapsing again and expanding indefinitely? In order to be as close as we are now, the rate of expansion early on had to be chosen fantastically accurately. If the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been less, by one part in 10 to the 10th power, that's one part in 10 billion, the universe would have collapsed after a few billion years. If it had been greater by one part in 10 to the 10th power, the universe would have been essentially empty after a few million years. In neither case would it have lasted long enough for life to develop. If the electric charge of the electron had been only slightly different, Stars would have been unable to burn hydrogen and helium or else they would not, or they would have exploded. Excuse me, or else they would not have exploded. It seems clear that there are relatively few ranges of values for the numbers, for the constants, that would allow for development of any form of intelligent life. Most sets of values would give rise to universes that, although they might be very beautiful, would contain no one able to wonder at that beauty. I'm now going to mention an incredibly large number. Please recall that 10 to the 10th power is equivalent to the number one followed by 10 zeros which is 10 billion. 10 to the 123rd power, by contrast, is 10 followed by 123 zeros. Imagine the number 10 to the 10th power multiplied by 10 to the 123rd power. It's a pretty big number. Sir Roger Penrose, 
who served for many years as the Roos Ball Professor of Mathematics at the Mathematical Institute at the University of Oxford, is my source for that number. How big, he asks, was the original phase volume that the creator had to aim for in order to provide a universe compatible with the second law of thermodynamics and with what we now observe? The creator's aim must have been precise to an accuracy in one, of one part in 10 to the 10th power multiplied by 10 to the 123rd power. This is an extraordinary figure. One could not possibly write the number down in full in the ordinary uh, Denary notation. It would be one followed by 10 to the 123 successive zeros. Even if we were to write a zero on each separate proton and each separate neutron in the entire universe, and we could throw in all the other particles as well for good measure, we would fall short of writing down the number needed. This is the precision needed to set the universe on its course. I cannot even recall, Penrose has written elsewhere, seeing anything else in physics whose accuracy is known to approach even remotely a figure like one part in 10 to the 10th to the 123rd power. But numbers in the same general ballpark abound. If, for example, the strength of gravity had been different by one part in 10,000 billion billion billion, writes Robin Collins, we would not exist. If the ratio of, of electron to proton mass were larger or, even, or, or larger than it is, uh, chemical bonding would, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know what I was writing there. Chemical bonding would be insufficient for life energy, or life chemistry. The allowable variation some have calculated is, is um, about one in 10. This is an incredibly small number. Says Hugh Ross, a PhD astrophysicist turned evangelist, one part in 10 to the 37th is such an incredibly sensitive balance that it's hard to visualize. The following analogy might help. Cover the entire North American continent in dimes all the way up to the moon, a height of about 239,000 miles. In comparison, the money to pay for the US federal de government debt would cover one square mile less than two feet deep with dimes. It's still pretty big. Next, pile dimes from here to the moon on a billion other continents, the same size as North America. Paint one dime red and mix it into the billions of piles of dimes. Blindfold a friend and ask him to pick out one dime. The odds that he will pick the red dime are one in 10 to the 37th power. Thus, even Steven Weinberg, a vocally atheist Nobel laureate cosmologist at Princeton, acknowledges that it does seem remarkably well-adjusted in our favor. <laughs> in fact, if the cosmological constant were not fine-tuned within an extremely narrow range, one part in 10 to the 53rd or even 10 to the 120th of its theoretically possible range of values, the universe would expand so rapidly that all matter would quickly disperse and thus galaxies, stars, and even small aggregations of matter would never form. According to philosopher Robin Collins, the odds of this occurring by random chance are roughly equivalent to those of hitting a bullseye on Earth less than the size of a single atom with a dart casually thrown from space. As physicist Stephen Barr comments, this is one of the most precise fine-tunings in all of physics. As Sir Fred Hoyle, another atheist, rather dejectedly wrote, it's, quote, as if a superintellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with the chemistry and the biology, and there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature." End quote. Now, you know, someone might respond to this and say, and people do say all the time, well, okay, so the universe is fine-tuned, big deal. You know, okay, we live in a universe that makes it possible for us to live. If it didn't make it possible for us to live, we wouldn't be here, end of question, you know, that's it. John Leslie wrote a wonderful little book called Universes. He's a philosopher who looked at this question. He comes up with a nice analogy. He says, okay, that lack of curiosity seems rather unscientific. Imagine that you were in front of a firing squad. You've been sentenced to die. There are 12 or 15 sharpshooters standing about 25 feet away. They're aiming at a target on your chest. The person counts down, pronounces the order to fire. They all fire, and 
you're still there. What do you say? Well, you know, I'm not curious because obviously if they'd killed me, I wouldn't be here to ask the questions. So, you know, so I'm not going to inquire anymore to find out why I'm here. Um, that's a certain lack of curiosity there, it seems to me. What I would argue is that it seems to me that you can at least make the argument. I'm not going to say it's a slam dunk, but you can at least make the argument based on these and many other similar things that intelligence may have been involved in the universe from the start, that there, there is something about this that seems as if a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics. Um, there, are, there are other things. I don't want to spend too much time on that because I've got other things I want to cover. Um, in fact, I need to see how much more time I have here. Oh my, not much. Got to pick up the pace. All right, um, this is the famous blue marble image. Um, one of the great pictures of the Earth taken from space. It puts it in a different perspective for us. There are some books that have come out within recent years, one of them uh, uh, bearing the title Rare Earth, I quite like that, in which they make the point that the Earth is, is really quite remarkable. When I grew up, the Earth was an undistinguished planet in an undistinguished solar system in an undistinguished part of the Milky Way galaxy. Big deal, you know. The Copernican Revolution had supposedly dethroned the Earth and all that. We now learn there are a lot of things about the Earth, including plate tectonics and so on, that are really quite remarkable. If you don't have them, you can't have life. Now again, does this prove design? I'm not arguing that. I'm arguing that this is not quite so easy to brush off as it might seem. I'm interested with these and only getting into the 50-50 point, you're willing to, willing to consider the possibility that maybe the universe is a put-up job, as Fred Hoyle also called it. Um, okay, so I'm, I don't want to uh, go further on that, but there's a lot more detail on that particular element of the argument. Um, Looking at primitive life, for example, the origin of life. When I grew up, the Miller-Urey experiment was the big deal. We all knew that you know, under certain conditions, life would come to be in a natural way because uh, Miller-Urey had been able to, to uh, form amino acids, simple amino acids in a test tube. Um, it now turns out that's probably wrong because the early conditions of the early Earth were not like those in the Miller-Urey experiment. And anyway, amino acids are still not life. We still don't really know how life arose. One thing that we do know is that life is incredibly complex. When you look at something like DNA, you're looking at the equivalent of thousands of sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica in terms of data. Now, the Encyclopedia Britannica may not mean much to many of you who have never actually seen an encyclopedia, but for the older generation to know what they look like on a shelf, that's a lot of information, right? Um, and so there's a lot going on in DNA. Um, and some other things we've discovered that, that life originated on the Earth about as early as it was physically possible for it to originate. This is really interesting. It used to be thought that, well, you know, given things, given enough time, enough chance, life will come to be. As soon as the Earth was cool enough for Earth to appear, it now seems life appeared. What does that mean? I don't know, but it does mean that it's not just a matter of throwing it like politicians solve problems by throwing money at them, right? Um, speculators about the early Earth and life on Earth used to just throw enough time at it, you know, enough time, well, anything can happen. It reminds me of the, the cartoon maybe some of you have seen of the, uh, the two physicists who are standing in front of a, um, of a whiteboard, and there are all these equations on the whiteboard, but right in the middle of it, it says, then a miracle occurs, and then it goes on, and the one physicist is saying to the other, you know, I, maybe you should be more explicit about that stage, <laughs> you know? Um, it's sort of a science of the gaps, if you will. You hear the God of the gaps argument dismissed all the time, and rightly so, but there is a science of the gaps. You know, we're sometimes given a promissory note that, well, we're going to explain this. Maybe they will and maybe they won't, but the fact is that there's some remarkable things here. 
and that DNA arises in ways we don't really know. We get into the whole specified complexity issue and so on, but I don't want to spend much more time on that because I don't have much more time on that. So another irrelevant but attractive rest slide. Um, one other issue that I want to talk about is the whole issue of consciousness. We don't know what consciousness is. Now that's odd because consciousness is the thing we are most closely uh, uh, acquainted with. We know about our own consciousness. That's precisely the point. I can cut into somebody else's head. I can see how the brain functions. We can measure what parts of the brain fire up at certain points. But we cannot have the sense of what's going on in that head. My personal subjective experiences are mine. They're not yours, and I can never have yours, you can never have mine. And we don't know what that means. Where did consciousness come from? Even if you create a really elaborate um, uh, computer, is it conscious, and how would we know? Um, what's his name, the, uh, the mathematician who's big in the movie that was just done about him? Um, yeah, the, the Turing machine, you know. The Turing machine problem, you could have something that behaves as if it's conscious, but how would you know? Unless you can gain access to it, we don't know how to gain access to it. Um, the whole question of intentionality. I had a dialogue with someone just yesterday. I have these dialogues all the time on the internet, but they're useful to me. I learn what's going on out there, what's, what's agitating the hive, if you will. And, um, and this fellow was saying, look, thought is nothing more than, he's quoting someone, he probably doesn't know he is, but thought is, thought is something secreted by the brain in the same way the liver secretes bile, right? And it's just a chemical thing. I said, well then, why should I listen to you any more than I should listen to your toaster? He says, what does that mean? My toaster doesn't have thoughts. And I said, well, by your standards, neither do you. Uh, if thought is just a neurochemical event, uh, then, then what is it? And, and how, can a, how can a neurochemical or an electrochemical event be about anything else? I mean, he may be thinking that he's thinking about the nature of the brain, but toasters aren't doing anything. I mean, re physical events and physical objects aren't about anything else. If your brain, if your liver, when it's secreting bile, isn't, that's not, that secretion is not about the planet Mars. The astronomer may be thinking he's thinking about the planet Mars, but if his brain is no different than his liver or his kidney, it's hard to know what that would even mean. But the fact is we know that we do think. Okay? I mean, it's funny to me to see some philosophers of consciousness now saying consciousness is an illusion. Like, well then, who's having the illusion? <laughs> what in the world are you talking about? It reminds me of, of the, the great um, Bishop Barclay, who refuted, or he, he said that everything was just imaginary, and, and was it, uh, oh, I'm getting this confused now. Is it who it walks out? Oh, it's, it's, it's uh, Samuel Johnson, who walks out and, and kicks a rock, which he said was real, and just not a mental event, you know, uh, not hallucination. And he said, there, I've refuted Barclay. Uh, and in a way, he had. I mean, the very thought that I can think this is wrong proves that the whole idea that I can't think is wrong. Does that make sense to you? And every one of you here right now, even if you're thinking that speaker is an idiot, you're proving that I'm right. <laughs> so you can't get around this, all right? So, um, okay. Now, I want to take the, st the argument a little further and look at something uh, that a lot of you have heard about near-death experiences. I'm not going to get into the great details of near-death experiences. I'm not interested, for purposes of this argument, in the details of heaven or something like that. But here you may recognize this famous painting, The Ascent into the Empyrean by Hieronymus Bosch. Um, clearly, it seems to me, he had heard stories of a tunnel of light. Now, look at that. The souls of the deceased are being taken into this tunnel toward the light at the end of the tunnel. This is not new stuff. You know, um, 
what's his name, just Raymond Moody, just started this a few years ago, basically, and now we know all about the Tunnel of Light, but it's been around for a long time. You can find older accounts of it. What really interests me, though, is the, is the part of those near-death experiences that is connected with out-of-body experiences. Going back to William James, William James once said that all you needed to do to refute the idea that all crows are black is to find one white crow, okay? If you can find one case of a verifiable out-of-body experience, naturalism, materialism collapses, right? Now, I think there are a lot of cases like that that look very promising. I'll mention one, um, the case of Pam Reynolds. So you may have heard of this very famous case in which a woman underwent a, a very delicate brain operation under the most tightly controlled conditions in Arizona. Her body was frozen, her brain activity, her heart activity, everything reduced to zero. There was a staff around her watching everything. They were using an experimental knife to cut into her skull and work on her brain. Her eyes were taped shut. Her face was muffled with, uh, with gauze and so on. She couldn't see anything. She couldn't hear anything. They had little clickers in her, in her ears to make sure that if there was any kind of brain activity from those clicking sounds, they would detect it. There was nothing. Totally flatlined for, for several minutes. When she came out of it, she was able to describe what had gone on in the operating room. She was able to describe and draw this weird knife that they were using, which was an experimental thing she had never seen. Now that's just one case of many, but if that case is true, then the naturalistic equation of brain and mind, or brain and spirit, is false. Right there. It's overturned. Um, well, I'm going to be looking at that in some detail. There are a lot of cases like this. And as I say, one white crow, that's all you need. If you can get a lot of white crows, it's even better. But one white crow, white crow is enough. Okay. Um, irrelevant rest slide. Remember, we're thinking in Bayesian terms here. The idea is if, if you once established that it's even possible, this universe isn't the closed naturalistic system a lot of people think, then certain other things become more plausible. So I move on to the next stage, which is an argument which I'm not going to do here today. I'm just going to summarize a couple of things. I'm not making any of the arguments in detail that I'm going to make. Believe me, there's a lot more stuff. As I'm talking about six fairly big volumes that I'm, that I'm working on. Um, but um, now if we've established it's at least possible you know, that, that, that the universe is, is some sort of more mysterious place than we'd thought, then the whole idea of the, the resurrection of Christ becomes at least something you can be open to. So what is the evidence for that? Did Christ really rise from the dead? Well, there are a lot of detailed historical arguments that, I, that can make, be made for this. It was universally agreed in antiquity that the tomb was empty. The Jewish critics of Christianity agreed with that. Nobody denied it. From the start, you find that in the New Testament, but also in later Jewish materials. They say, yeah, the body was stolen, just what was said in the Gospel of Matthew, right? Um, if Jesus' body had still been in the tomb, it would have been the easiest thing in the world to put an end to this thing. Well, there he is, right, decomposing in the tomb. But the body wasn't there. Um, you, there are several things I'll bring up here. Early witnesses, for example, the oldest things in the New Testament go back very, very early. 1 Corinthians 15, you have a whole list of witnesses. This is early material. That's within 20 years or so of the death of Christ. And there are, there are creeds quoted within the letters of Paul. 
that seem to be much older. Some people have argued they go back to within five years of the event. It's not the hundreds of years that the Tübingen school said years ago, ah, you know, these legends grow up, give them enough time, folklore grows up. No, the, the story of Christ being raised from the dead, physically raised from the dead, is very, very early. Walter Cast Cardinal Caspar in, in Rome is one of the great New Testament theologians of the 20th and 21st centuries, has argued actually that some of the material in the New Testament goes back to within one year, one year of the event. There's not a lot of time there for folklore to grow up. Uh, those creedal statements are extremely important. They haven't been noticed very much. Um, you have to explain the behavior of the early apostles. One of the explanations was they were just frauds. They made up this story. That's absurd. I mean, a brilliant idea. Let's make up a false religion and go out and get ourselves killed. You know? <laughs> What's the motivation for this? You look at the early chapters of Acts, something transforms the apostles from that Saturday when they're, when they're hiding out in the upper room and Sunday morning. And then when the, when the Savior appears to them, they are transformed and they go out after that and they're speaking on the streets of Jerusalem. They're, they're arrested, they're beaten and so on. The people tell them, stop doing this, we'll beat you, we'll throw you into prison. Their response is, you do what you've got to do, we'll do what we've got to do. They have been transformed by this. How do you explain that? How do you explain that Peter, who grows up, grows up in a tiny little town on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, which is by all accounts very Orthodox Jew, uh, Jewish. We now can sort of demonstrate that Capernaum was, and Bethsaida probably, uh, from archeological ruins um, and remains that Peter ends up in Rome. What in the world is Peter doing in Rome? How many Galilean fishermen ended up in Rome, a place where they couldn't even speak the language? Peter might have had a little bit of Greek, but they didn't speak Greek in Rome. They spoke Latin. He was in the largest city of the ancient world, a place totally foreign to him. What took him there? What transformed him and sent the other apostles around the world? Something really, really big. Uh, happened. And I'm going to argue the historical case for the resurrection of Jesus, and it's not original with me. I'll be drawing on people like N.T. Wright and William Lane Craig and, and, uh, and, and people like that. He's much stronger than I used to realize that it was. Okay. So again, remember, we're thinking in Bayesian terms. Um, and uh, let's see how much time I have here now. Oh my, it's getting tight. I'll go through this very quickly. To outline the logic of the last part, I have 51 seconds by my watch. Um, okay, well, um, suppose that I've gotten you this far. Uh, you've said, okay, I'm willing to entertain the possibility that theism is true. There might be a God. This universe may not be the naturalistic closed system that I thought it was. Um, maybe even Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, it's at least a, it's a possibility to consider. That's N.T. Wright's conclusion that as a historian, he says, the only explanation I can come up with to account for the data is that Certainly the apostles thought Jesus rose from the dead. They were really convinced of it. Um, and they claimed to have seen him, to have, to have had encounters with him. Can I get you all the way to Mormon theism? This is where I'd uh, go with a whole bunch of stuff. But I just want to show you the general outline of the argument. These, I'm going to concentrate on the Book of Mormon here. These are the two possibilities, it seems to me. Either Joseph had the plates or he didn't have plates. Then there's my alarm. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Joseph had plates or he didn't have plates, right? Then there are several possible, possible sub-sections of these. He knew he had no plates, he thought he had plates, so on and so forth. Basically, he's a deliberate deceiver, he's nuts, right? Or he had the plates, but he faked, he faked them or something like that. I want to look at those um, in somewhat detail. I'm not going to do it today, but just kind of outline some of the basic argument there. So first, let's look at the idea that Joseph had no plates. Okay, possibility... He, he knew he had no plates. 
first is he's a cynical fraud. The evidence against that, it seems to me, is overwhelming. Uh, if you look at the personal writings of Joseph Smith that have been coming out over the past few years, journal entries and so on from a very early period, if he's not sincere, if he's not a real believer, then I have no capacity to judge human nature. Because even in his journal, his letters to his wife, his letters to his children, it is absolutely clear he's a believer. He really believes he's had these experiences. He really believes that he had the plates and that he's had encounters with Moroni and so on. There's no evidence of cynical fraud in him, certainly not. You could argue about polygamy. Some people bring that up. But I'm talking here about the Book of Mormon, the early years, just not possible to find. You cannot find it, in my view. So um, was he a 19th century con man? Uh, well, look what he went through. Liberty Jail, really a pleasant experience for him. And that was just a part of it. There was the tarring and feathering and so on. But that time in Liberty Jail, he came as near despair, and I think he really did, as, as a human possibly could. But he didn't give in because he knew it was true. The Hans Mill Massacre. Can you imagine, if you have any decency in you at all, that people are dying for this vision that you've had? Isn't it time to say, look, I just made it up, or at least disappear, go gracefully away? No, he doesn't. He stays with it because he believed it. And then, of course, ultimately, he goes to his own death, knowing, I think, pretty well that he was going to. It's a very odd thing for a conscious deceiver to do. Um, but he's killed for his testimony. And remember, the word martyr in Greek, martyros, means both witness and martyr in our, in our modern sense. Um, and he was that. Also, think of this. Many of his visions, here's one, are shared with other people. So if he's a conscious fraud, he's also inducing this in other people, or he's got conscious frauds associating with him, and there are lots of them. His mother, his sister, the three witnesses, the eight witnesses, Sidney Rigdon, it just goes on and on and on. He's found all these people who are willing to collude with him and who never, ever give any sign that they were deliberate frauds or that they believed it was all a fake. Um, that's just very hard for me to imagine. Um, imagine that, he had, that there were no plates, but he was a pious fraud. This one's hard, harder to deal with because... You know, he could give all the appearances of sincerity and so on, but there's no evidence of this either, that he's doing this, he made up the story, and he convinced other people to go along with him in order to convince people to some noble purpose, like believe in God, even though I've made it all up. Um, just no evidence for that. But, you know, there are plenty of crazy prophets out there. Um, okay, Joseph had no place. He thought he had plates. Is he nuts? Well, um, again... If he's just subjectively hallucinating, what do you do with the witnesses? Are they all hallucinating in sync with him? They talk in very specific terms about turning over the plates and hefting them. They were about 60 pounds and this sort of thing. It's a very specific kind of mass hallucination, which involves the tactile senses and everything else. Very hard for me to imagine that that's possible. All right, let's assume that Joseph had plates. One possibility is he made them. Um, let's assume, again, that he was a cynical fraud. Um, who made them? Joseph? Where did he get the gold? Do you realize how much gold that would have taken to produce even gold alloy that weighed 60 pounds? A lot of gold. Some people have suggested, Joseph showed no metallurgical skills, that Oliver Cowdery was the metallurgist who did this, a blacksmith. If you look at the picture of Oliver Cowdery. This is an authentic picture of Oliver Cowdery, the massive man who died of tuberculosis just after 50. Uh, he was a very small and not overly healthy man. He was not Longfellow's 
blacksmith with you know the sinewy arms and all that sort of thing nothing like that there's no reason to believe that anybody in the early latter-day saint community had access to 40 pounds of gold or 20 pounds of gold whatever it would have taken to have made this alloy there's nobody recording smoke belching out of the secret furnace to just to the south of palmyra or anything like that as they're producing not only the plates but the Leahona, the Urim and Thummim, a whole array of specialty metal objects, right? These guys are good. They're really good, and nobody knows that they can do it. Nobody sees the wagon loads of gold going into the, into the Smith home. Remember, they're subsistent, subsistence farmers. Where do they get all this stuff from? And where does it go afterwards? Poof, it's just gone. They could have been incredibly wealthy. We're talking about millions of dollars worth of metal here. There's no sign of it. There's no, no sign that Joseph made the plates, okay? Possibility two, he received them from somebody else. Well, you have a lot of problems with the idea he received them from a contemporary. Who was it? And with what motives? And where did they go? What happens to this enormously impressive metallurgical object with lots of gold in it? Again, just not plausible. There's no historical evidence for anything like this. So. Some people have posited an invisible group that have, one guy actually told me, yeah, they were so good, they, they vanished. There's not a trace of them in history. They're like the Illuminati, right? They're so good that they just, they don't show up anywhere. And their motives, I asked him, he said, unknown. <laughs> well, you know, you can do that sort of thing all day. Uh, <laughs> like the invisible rabbit and Harvey. Um, only he had more evidence behind him, actually. So I want to suggest, yes, he did get the plates from somebody else. Um, he received them from a non-contemporary. I have a suggestion. Um, and to me, that argument right there makes logical sense. Well, I just want to close with this. I've gone on way too long. But um, what I want to lay out is, is, a, is a logical case that will lead somebody, I hope, to think, you know, Maybe there's something to this. I can't get them to belief. And I think a belief that was based on a set of arguments like this would not be stable, would not be adequate. But you want to get to them to the point, as my father was brought to the point, where eventually he had to find out, is this true? Does this make any sense? He concluded that it did because of things that came to him. Um, I can't deliver those things. Those are the personal subjective things. But the Book of Mormon contains that wonderful promise that that kind of assurance can come to you. And if this kind of argumentation can save someone who's on the way out or help somebody who's teetering on the brink of the way in, then the argument will have achieved its purpose. Um, and, uh, but the most important thing, of course, is the witness of the Spirit. I don't negate that. I don't deny that or minimize it. I want to bury my testimony that the gospel is true. It doesn't make logical sense. We don't have to say, I know it's irrational, but I choose to believe. It is not an irrational choice. It's maybe not one that you can prove to the satisfaction of, a, of an indifferent public, but it's not irrational. It's a rational choice under conditions of, of limited and indecisive public evidence. But it's a rational way to go. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. With numerous factors of nature that make life possible, there's not one factor to make life impossible. Why do scientists ignore the obvious? Well, you know, obviously there's no factor that's made life impossible or we wouldn't be here. Um, but yeah, there are people who are very impressed by, the, uh, by these 
cosmic fine-tuning arguments. There are others who say, no, 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 there, we just happen to live in a, in a universe among a multiverse, and the other multiverses presumably are sterile, the laws of nature are different. It's hard to prove that or disprove it. There's some theoretical reasons to believe it. But I, it doesn't strike me as a very persuasive way. And it seems to me if you want to go with Occam's razor, the principle you invoke the simplest explanation, then maybe God is just as easy as the multiverse in some ways. Don't multiply entities unnecessarily. Um, some people say, well, I just can't believe in God, but I do believe in an infinitude of bubble universes, uh, you know, and so on. Um, but again, I'm not trying to get you to certainty. I'm just trying to get you to the point where you're willing to entertain the possibility. Do you discuss consciousness or the mind-body problem? Oh, yes. Uh, in other words, the question of how dead matter can form the thing called thought. I would argue that we don't know how dead matter can form the thing called thought. We can, we can produce machines that can imitate thought. We'll get to be very good at this. But will they be conscious? It'll be impossible to know. I don't actually know. Alvin Plantinga has argued this. Uh, I don't actually know that anybody here is conscious. I mean, you might all be automatons. I may be the only conscious person in the world, for all I know. Some of you, many of you actually, act conscious. <laughs> but, but, yeah. but, but I can't know it. You might be a really good imitation. Uh, you know, might be a really fine robot. Um, so uh, there's a job opening currently at the Maxwell Institute if you considered applying for it. <laughs> The, the thought has crossed my mind. I have this mischievous streak. Um, what do you think of intelligent design? I don't write it off. Uh, I think that they raise some good arguments. I think, you know, I, I've seen the arguments that it's not really science, and, and maybe that's not true. That's not what I want it to be. It does raise some interesting issues, just things that, to me, make you go, wow, you know, that the DNA is so complex, that the universe is so complex and so fine-tuned. Uh, do I say this proves there was, there was an intelligent designer and that intelligent designer is God? I don't think it proves that, but I think it might give rise to, um, to a belief that it was so. And I think in a sense, any Latter-day Saint who believes that, that God had something to do with the creation has to believe in some form of intelligent design. I mean, that's kind of basic to the gospel, that the universe didn't occur by chance. I'm not a big one on the details of Genesis or anything like that. I don't argue about you know, periods of creation, exactly what it means. But I think, I, I've, I've argued when talking about Genesis and Revelation too, I'll say, the importance of these two bookends of the, of the Bible is to show you that God is in charge at the beginning and at the end. You may not get all the details of the end of the world. I'm not so worried about that. But the point is to reassure you as things get really bad, God is still in charge, it'll turn out okay. At the beginning, analogously, we may not know all the details. And Genesis doesn't actually give you a lot of details about how things come to be. But it does tell you that God is involved with it, and that's the basic thing you have to know. It, it, that, to me, is a kind of basic rudimentary intelligent design, and I'd go that far. Um, are you still working on a TV series about these things, scientific evidence showing design of the Earth, universe, life, etc.? I hope so. I hope so, too. Trouble is, it involves a lot of money and time, and uh, the amount of money it would take is daunting. So if any of you out there haven't given enough to Fair Mormon. There's, there's another cause. Okay, he's willing to cooperate with me. Any thoughts on Randy's million dollar prize for any supernatural evidence? You know, I haven't really looked into it very much. I'm leery of anything where a, where an avowed skeptic is judge, jury, and executioner. Uh, to me, there's evidence for, I don't know that I'd call it supernatural. I have a problem with the term. Um, but 
something, as I say, beyond the closed naturalistic system, I think the evidence is pretty good for that. I think the very existence of consciousness may be evidence for that. I think the Pam Reynolds case may be evidence for that. But would it pass muster with James Randi? I, I tend to believe, look, the, the evidence is never strong enough to force you. It's strong enough to suggest. It's strong enough to justify belief. It's not strong enough to compel belief. And I think that's deliberate. I think that's the universe we're supposed to be in. Um, one explanation for Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon could be satanic-derived, supernatural, to deceive him and others. This is the only anti-Mormon explanation I have heard with any merit. Of course, I believe this is a ridiculous explanation, but you may want to add it onto your list. That is, you know, sort of like the, uh, uh, the pious fraud thing. It's a little hard to, to defend against because I'm not sure it makes any real predictions that you can falsify, you know, which is essential for a scientific theory and probably a historical one, that everything you could say, well, he looks sincere. Yeah, he would, wouldn't he? Well, <laughs> there's no evidence he's a fraud. Of course there isn't. There wouldn't be, would there? I mean, I don't know what to do with that uh, except to say, look at the fruits of it. I mean, Mormons are healthy. They're happy. It's a good way of life. And uh, if you think Satan is that devious that he'd actually construct a happy mode of life for millions of people in order to defraud us and send us to hell, well, okay, that's the kind of universe you want to live in. It's, it's yours. Thank you.